connecting to Miami, Little Havana, Coconut Grove, South Miami, Pinecrest, and South Beach. Oh, and of course, Key Biscayne. WSQF Blink Radio. What's up, everyone? This is Mac of the Rock, WSQF Blink Radio for the Concrete Conservative Hour. I think I have only one call in today. And um, I think he's going to have an opinion. Bill's going to have an opinion about small business and those who uh, are getting shellacked and smacked down in liberal cities, in little progressive virus-infested towns like Minneapolis, New York City, Philadelphia, and others, Buffalo, New York, you know, where the where everybody's a liberal, mayor's a liberal, council members a liberal, Governor's a liberal. Everybody's a liberal. They don't want you to protect yourself. They don't want you to have weapons. And uh, you're basically screwed. You can't defend yourself, and the cops don't want to defend you anymore. They're tired of the BS. Can't take out their gun. They, they're, they're getting smacked in the face. They're getting knocked to the street. Hoodlums are just robbing the town blind. Not as eluding a stop because all the stores are already, you know, everything they wanted is already gone can't keep on looting the same store, you know, that once the glass is broken and it's boarded up, there's nothing inside. So you can see how that would eventually calm down. Here in Miami, because we got guns, you know, there were some cars blown up and stuff here and there. But I figure that the looting was, you know, held to a minimum because you ran the risk of having the owner being called if he's not already inside the store. Coming guns blazing, defending his business. That's the thing that people don't want to talk about. The reason why people have their own personal firearms and those who have personal carries are for a reason. To mitigate a threat. You have to mitigate the threat. Probably the three best words I had to stop the threat if you take somebody down on your property. Just tell a police officer, Your Honor, officer, sorry, with all due respect, I had to mitigate the threat. You want a weapon? Let's say it's four w- words because there's, you know, conjective, you know, uh, there's a conjective there. I had to mitigate the threat. Oh my God, six words. Had to mitigate the threat. And that, you know, that'll calm looting. I'm sure the people of Minneapolis are really hoping to have their weapons. I believe California had a run on their weapons. It's uh, the right to bear arms, man. You can imagine when there wasn't much of a police force back in the days when the right to bear arms was so important. That's the only way to protect your property. It's the only way to protect anything, any type of security, was do it yourself. I don't see why America thought that eliminating a person's right to carry a weapon was going to become more safe. Are you kidding me? I mean, come on. The NRA's statement made it very clear and made it clear 100 years ago, 75 years ago, 50 years ago, 25 years ago, yesterday. The only way to stop a bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun. There's nothing more to be said. You know, it's just, it is what it is. So, there's nothing really much you can say about what just happened in this country. And if you date back to when 
Donald Trump made it a made it clear I'm going to drain the swamp. Look what's happened. Look how hard it is to drain the swamp. And all he's been able to do productively, domestically, is repair old southern border fence. Think about it. He hasn't built any new miles, not that I know of anyway. Most of it is just renovation of miles. Maybe he's extended a couple mile, miles, you know, here and there, but mostly he's just repairing fence that already presently exists. And everybody knows you know, through the, you know, the Clear Fence Act and the Real ID Act, that uh, this this wall was supposed to be erected by now. Well, Tui for you, I kind of knew all that stuff, and I suggested to not only Senator Ted Cruz when he ran, I also gave it to Marco Rubio when he ran, and they both just told me to pound sand I was crazy. I haven't told Trump, but I was told he was presented with the idea. And that uh, Kelly and Mike Pence love the idea. Don't know if it's true, but the people that know of my wall and possibly have taken my wall somewhere who believed in the big idea, um, I have every reason to believe that they would do what they said they would do, which is put it in front of Trump some way, somehow. And when Trump was open for designs for a fence, I'm sure he regrets not taking mine seriously. Mine's called the Great Wall of Will. The will of the American people, I steal the Great Wall from the Great Wall of China. And how fitting that is at this point, considering our circumstances with China. And my fence is not a fence at all. It's a giant wall of will of the United States with a natural gas-powered freight train. Moving from the port of San Diego to the port of Galveston, Texas, connecting the Richest city with the oldest city. I believe so much in this train and other reinventions that I've suggested in my book, The Fiscals, Fiscals.com, TheFiscals.com. You see how you can re-rent the country. And as I watch the news, all this news, I realize that you guys are not very bright. Most of you listen out there, just not very bright. You're pretty much led by the nose. You pretty much believe everything the press tells you. And if you don't, you only believe Fox News. Well, even Fox News kind of repeats itself. And although they're right on 95% of the issues, that little 5% that they get wrong, it's really from the executives who tell them they just can't go that route. Perfect example is when you're interviewing someone who who's a public office and they're Community doesn't experience the rioting that other communities experience. The answer is, oh, well, we are really close to the community and uh, we've done outreach and, uh, you know, we've had riots in the past and we've learned from them. And we're, we're, we're not perfect, but we're doing our best. And they exclude the right to bear arms in their states and their cities. As the mayor of Miami-Dade County, Mayor Jimenez said, He and Xavier Suarez's son, Mayor Suarez's son, said the same thing, that, you know, we have outreach and we communicate with the community and we let the community know that we're with them, we understand uh, their plight. They don't talk about the weapons. They don't talk about half of Flagler, all of 8th Street, 
or should I say it the other way around, half of 8th Street, all of Flagler, have personal carries. They either have the permit or they have the gun. Not to mention all the other guns that were purchased. And uh, I don't know. I don't think it would be very smart to riot in Hispanic areas where people are armed to the teeth. People in Miami are simply packed. And uh, they drop lead on people, no problem. You throw stones through stores. If that owner is in that store, you're dead, bro. It's just that simple. And if you keep on throwing stones and you hang around long enough for that owner to get off his butt, out of his pajamas, into his pants, and drive over to, to save his shop, and they find you throwing stones in the street, you're also going to be dead. And you're going to be dragged into their store. And then those six famous words, Officer, I'm very sorry. I had to eliminate the threat. And that's the end of that. Well, think about it, America. That's our biggest problem. A liberal. A liberal, what they think, what they say, what they do. None of it is truthful. All of it is emotional. And none of it makes any kind of real life sense. Now, change the subject. Did you hear the link recently? The news? Someone... Call me here at 305-365-7777. See if you can beat Bill Earl. Bill Hurley, sorry. There's an H on his last name. Bill Hurley. Hurl. Hurley. Um, we'll ask him to pronounce his name when he calls. Before he does so, um, he, just testing my ringer here, that uh, there's a, a report out that George Floyd was speedballed. Anybody who knows what speedballing is, drug addicts and partiers know what speedballing is. It's like uh, smoking crack 10 times. Apparently, you take opioids and fentanyl together, a stimulant and a depressant together, and it makes you like really out of control. Uh, everything's accentuated. Um, you know, I can't give you too much detail. Because I haven't speedballed. You know, I don't speedball. But I'm just reading from this article. And apparently he was in the back of the car. A video has just come out in Minneapolis where the cops had him in the back of the car. And apparently he was about to hurt himself because he was convulsed, you know, suffering from convulsions or just being, you know, creating a fuss back there. He was, you know, commotion. And apparently he was hurting himself, so they took him back out of the car and threw him on the floor. And that's when they, that one officer uh, applied the, the need to him. So if he's speedballing, he's out, and they're gonna, you know that's going to come up in court. You know uh, he might get off on manslaughter charter, charges only. And if he does... This town's going to burn again. Not this town, my town, because my town's armed to the teeth on WS Blink Radio. Kibis Gang. Um, by the way, Kibis Gang, we had a protest. Uh, you know, we we celebrated um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I call it a celebration because everybody was really festive, and I don't think anybody was mourning uh, George Floyd, but... Uh, 
you know, it is what it is. You know, people want to feel significant about stuff. And if they're taught in public school systems that there is systematic racism nationwide, if it's systematic, how can you explain, you know, George Bush having people in his cabinet who were black, Trump as well? Um, how can you explain uh, companies, top to bottom executives, black as well? Um, how can you explain uh, a lot of popularity uh, about race relations in this country? I mean, we just, there isn't systematic or systemic violence in this country. Sorry, racism in this country. There is systematic, systemic violence within the black community, that's for sure. There are only, what, 6% of the male 6% of the of the black population um, of the United States is black male, okay? But they, they're attributed to 40% of the crime, so naturally they're going to have more contact with police officers. And when there's more contact with police officers, there's going to be a bad apple in the group, you know? There's going to be a cop that takes it to another place. There's going to be a cop that's having a bad day. There's going to be a cop that just doesn't want to tolerate any more BS for today or that day. There is going to be a white cop eventually that doesn't really like what the black, what the the black guy is saying because he's already gone through this before with them. It's a bunch of reasons why someone can not behave ethically while they're arresting somebody. Very human, but um, there's there's a lot of professionals out there who are African American who understand what. I'm talking about. In fact, I'm copying what they're saying. I'm pretty much uh, listening to them and and listening to what they're saying, and they understand the difference between the way they were raised, the way their parents raised them, and the the parents got the color glasses off their faces. They stopped short about blaming the white guy for their problems. They say, hey, man, we're black in this country. None of these people own slaves. We got to pull our shoestrings up, tie our knots a little harder than everybody else. We got to prove ourselves. And uh, we're not, you know, we don't really need this government money. We got to go make our own. And for generations, uh, uh, several generations, blacks had a considerable amount of businesses. And they were starting them, and they owned a considerable amount of real estate and a considerable amount of nuclear families, a lot more than they have now. And that's a systemic problem in the race community. It's just out-of-wedlock birth, broken homes, you know, not really empowering themselves with jobs, having difficulty staying employed, having difficulty graduating from college, even attending college. And then it doesn't help when blacks— who are educated, who are affluent, who do get a chance, doesn't help that they realize the writing on the wall. They don't stay around for to lead by example. They hightail. They leave to more affluent communities, you know. And most of them communities are not affluent black communities. They're affluent white communities. There's something to be said about just that harsh reality that even blacks who get out of the hood don't really want to go back into the hood. I mean, I know of one instance that it was always impressive to me that Magic Johnson would develop real estate in poor neighborhoods, but he had, you know, a substantial amount of his portfolio in middle-class neighborhoods. But, yeah, 
he'd take the time to replicate some of his <coughs> developments in in black neighborhoods as well, and that's uh, it's, it's commendable for Magic's uh, business model to include the hood. But too many uh, black men just don't uh, don't stay around. They realize it's systemic cultural values, systemic uh, racism among black people. I mean, blacks have to acknowledge that they're very racist too, among themselves. Not only do they, you know, have contempt for the black guy for uh, for not being as black as them, or for not getting an education, or for coming from a poor family, I heard that blacks sometimes uh, are not too crazy about each other's tones. You know how black they are, and how how some lighter blacks think they're a little bit more sophisticated or cultured or something, something erroneous, you know, something ridiculous. But among themselves, there's 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 that issue as well, the light skin and the dark skin and all that. So there's a lot of mountains to climb here. And uh, I don't appreciate it here on the Concrete Conservative. I don't appreciate uh, being accused of racist. I'm not, uh, there's nothing racist about me. I'm first of all Hispanic, so I'm not a white guy. So as a brown guy, I'm not I I don't think I should be clumped into white people. I don't pretend to be white. I know I'm a spickety pan. I'm a spickety pan on brown guy. Uh, you might want to call me white because you know I have qualities that are not African American anyway, and I don't. I'm definitely not mulatto. But man, I'm Hispanic, man, and uh, I know it. I feel it. I discuss it. I talk like it. Uh, I just understand that I'm a minority. I pretend to be anything otherwise. And um, yeah, I'm in places. I'm in places where people look down on me. I've been in North Carolina, for instance. I was there for a college graduation. I can pretty much uh, understand that uh, that people weren't too crazy about me, especially if, if I, you know, raise my my tone as you know in Spanish. Uh, you know, they just weren't impressed with me, period. So there's nothing you can really say about systemic racism or anything of that nature because the truth of the matter is it's an unanswerable grievance. Now, if it's an unanswerable grievance, how are we going to resolve that issue? There can only be one resolution. Everybody said it, who cares to say it, who knows it, it to be true. And I can honestly slay asleep at night because nobody cared more than I did in 2013, the reinvention of the public school system. Think about it. If we don't start now, it's going to take 25 years anyway, so why not start now? Where you got to put parents back in the driver's seat. Every day that goes by, every year that goes by, every decade that goes by, Parents may be less and less and less able, mature enough to even take on the task. So there always will have to be in every school five people that are willing to sit on a board and control the finances of a public school and not have to pay rent for the buildings that they have taken back. Nobody really wants to address what is true about public school cannot be reformed. It must be reinvented. You can go to 
Another chapter in my book called The Fiscals, Parent Guardianship School. Just Google Parent Guardianship School. And if we can get this law passed, the direct ballot parent trigger law, which I was the first to use in Florida history in 2013, to great despair and a considerable abuse of my daughter and myself, you can check out what Ron DeSantis and Governor Scott should have done a long time ago, exclude the teachers from the voting guidelines within the law, put in by Charlie Crist. The law was originally passed by Lawton Childs, 1996, but he let it sit there. He took it off the platform in case he had to run against Jeb Bush again. Well, we know the story. Lawton Childs dies on an uh, exercise bicycle, and uh, special election elects Jeb Bush, and Jeb Bush does nothing with the parent empowerment law, 1,233, clause 3B. Look it up. Parent empowerment law, Florida parent empowerment law. The only direct ballot. Go straight to the ballot. Call the vote. 90 days, call the vote. Reinvent the school. Once the parents are in control of the budget of the schools, they're free to save the surpluses, to repaint the school, rebuild the school, expand the school. As they save the surpluses, year after year you save them. In overcrowded conditions, it's easier to save. But you'll save money on everything. From janitorial supplies to chalks, pencils, and paper, you know how they have the parents bringing in the reams of paper so their kids can get extra credit? Well, that's a scam. Why? Because they're taking the money from the affluent neighborhoods, spreading it around to all the schools, and the dilapidated schools never get renovated. In our case, we renovated our school because the conversion to charter failed miserably. 83 nothing to the teachers alone. You had to win both elections, 531 to 31 among the parents. Most of these parents were South American, so they had, were given a right to vote without being American citizens. So another kudos tribute to me. And they just couldn't appreciate the very fact that I my idea was offering A teachers an A building. They didn't even appreciate the fact that they deserved a better building to teach out of, considering they were A teachers, and the school was an A school. So we lose so miserably that when they renovated the school, you know, all of a sudden— Four cases of breast cancer among teachers. I know of only two breast cancer cases since 2014 among parents. And one parent has died and one teacher has died. And that's what's sad because all those schools are like that. All of America's public schools have some degree of toxicants. In this case, asbestos, lead, mercury. And in other cases, God knows what, up in, up north. Who knows? I, I couldn't tell you, nor will I venture to say. So until that starts, until we reinvent the public school system, don't expect the the unanswerable grievances in the black communities to be solved if they're not willing to make sure their kids are being educated in their town's schools. And how much are black kids insisting that, sorry, how much are black African-American parents insisting that their black children are being educated and how, uh, how often are they insisting that their kids do their homework and get on with their life and go to college? Not to say that college is the answer, but trade school, which leads me to believe that public schools should start doing trade schooling all over again, no matter how expensive it is. And that's one of the budget cuts that occurred in, in public schooling is the elimination of the trade school and the, and the infamous shop 
that a lot of kids learn. A lot of kids learn shop when they were in public school. And these shop classes, these machines, which were kind of risky, I'm sure somebody sued somebody who lost a finger in shop. That kind of stuff is also sets the country back for personal gain. If you lose a finger in school because you're because it just happened, there's an accident. You know, bite the bullet, bro. Live the rest of your life without a toe, without a finger, without an eye. They offered you trade. You sh- should have known. I don't care how young you were. You had to take the class seriously, and you had to. You can't have mistakes. Period. So there's nothing more I can say other than the fact that. What else can solve an unanswerable grievance? An education. Most of my education came from reading myself. You know, there's a book you want to uh, talk about. A cool book. Read uh, 1493. The book 1493. Long book. It's not. It's not an easy read. And it talks about why slavery eventually became. The norm. It wasn't emotional or sadistic or racial from that perspective. It was just simply the harsh reality um, that blacks were immune to malaria. And the indentured white guys, the white indentured service that uh, were originally offered to come to America, were dying pretty quickly. And uh, it didn't make any sense to keep on signing contracts with indentured white guys from Europe, uh, especially the early ones from, you know, Scotland. When they then when malaria got them, it's written by Charles Mann, and uh, um, he tells a story of um, all the things that went on in the New World, how difficult it was to get this far how they had to keep on recruiting more and more people to come out to the new world because, hell, people were dying on the, on the voyage, on the trip there. So you can imagine uh, the likelihood of you dying within the first five years of living out in the new world. Malaria was everywhere, running rampant. And it's the story of, of redemption, basically. Our whole story has been about redemption, this whole country. The reason why it's been as successful as it's been is it was really driven by the the unalienable rights given to us by God way before we established religion. So it is what it is. It's a mysterious uh, sense of the divine that gets Americans up off their butts to create companies, to overcome adversity, to expand companies, to... Uh, start a new company after the first one, you know, tanked. It's that sense of answerable grievance instead of unanswerable grievance that moves the country forward. I know because I saw it in my own family. I know and I saw it in my own businesses. Geez, all my businesses, all of them, failed. There's some that were profitable for some time. But uh, they didn't last forever. I would move on and start something new. But, uh, my God, you learn through the mistakes? Absolutely. All my, all my success comes from seeing an opportunity, taking advantage of opportunity, and being an X factor in something that already existed. In other words, worked for with what I had. So it's, 
I mean, how else can you do without believing in something greater than yourself? So I don't know what else to tell you other than that's what makes us different between us and them. And I mean them, I mean everybody. Can you even think of a democracy out there that's worthwhile mentioning? I can only think of one that, you know, eh, yeah, you might as well mention it. And that's our neighbor to the north, Canada. I'm that 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 cap you know that economy and that political system seems to be functioning at a very high tax rate, but nevertheless functioning. It's functioning to the acceptance of 80, 83, 85, 86 million people that perhaps it's uh, eventually uh, gets mimicked here in the states with three hundred and twenty million. Three hundred and twenty million overtaxed, not going to look good. Because now you're looking at Europe. I wonder how many millions are in Europe. Europe probably has, uh, let me go to the internet here and see if I can figure out how many people live in in the European community. I wonder what the hell they think of all of them. I know that when they had national health care, for instance, their GDP shrank. So high taxes for that many people, um, it's not good. European community, community, you hear me ticking away? Population. Here we go. European, 445 million people are in the European community, European Union. So they're all together. You would think they'd be able to crank out more powerful economic engine than the United States, and yet it doesn't happen. Some people will say, oh, yeah, but they're all different countries with different languages. and Yeah, but they're all open borders using the same currency. They can't get it together because they're all high taxed. And when you get taxed at that level, you really want to redeem yourself if things fail? Eh. Do you really want to uh, start two, three, four businesses at a time? Eh. You know what I mean? It's just, come on. With national health care, do you really fear being unemployed if your health care is always taken care of? People when they're unemployed here in the States, man, not only do they not have a job to pay their bills, but if they get sick and their kids get sick, who's going to pay for that bill? Think about it. Think about the biggest problem we have with health care is that the fright and flight factor goes away. People are so not scared in Europe to lose their job because they get a national health care plan, they're going to get taken care of no matter whether they have a job or not. You can see the motivation to seek work can be tempered and the desire to not move on to bigger and better and brighter things, not as urgent as Americans. Americans pretty much want to own things, you know, want to have things. They want to be somebody, but they like to do something first. And that's the big issue. To be somebody, you got to do something first. And hopefully that whatever something you're going to do, it's hard. Do the hard stuff first. Because you only live twice to so do first things first. Pretty much understand that. We only live twice. Do first things first. Do you know what I mean? So I'm going to... Uh, I've been ranting here for 30 minutes. And um, 
I'm going to turn on Les Zeppelin's Dancing Days for now, and I'll be right back in a moment so I can get a drink of water because I'm starting to hiccup. Hey, free my friend. Back in a moment. Mac on the Rock, Blink Radio, WSQF 94.5 for the Concrete Conservative Hour.
I'm back, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. What can I tell you? You know, it's one of these things where I have no idea how things uh, get so inflamed. I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that the Democrats' ownership of the media can be that swift and quick. I mean, does the media really sell its soul out like that? I don't have no idea. I, I, I don't know how you can sabotage the effectiveness of the nation's politics by what the Democrats and the media have been able to do to our present President Donald J. Trump. It's hard to believe that they can go from Russian collusion that falls flat on its face, only saved by the four senators we have in the Senate. We, and I say we because it's obvious that I'm the concrete conservative, therefore I'm a GOPer. Believe me, difficult at times, but considering the other side of the politics, is no, there's nowhere for me to go. Um, it really is uh, such a such a reality that the, the Mueller can sit there and steal so much money from the United States investigating something that just wasn't true. In other words, looking for a crime, an investigation looking for a crime. You'd think they would stop there. Then they create this whole hookaboo about a call with the Ukrainians. And the president put the call out there. See for yourself. Hey, I want you to uh, investigate stuff. It's creating a lot of chaos in my country. You know, you campaigned on it, Mr. Ukrainian. I wish I could remember and not mispronounce his name. Um, and they investigated that and they impeached in the House. He was impeached by the House. What a, what a scam. And if again, if it wasn't for the four senators and advantage in the Senate, he would have been impeached. And that half vote that Romney uh, gave the senators, because, you know, you saw what he did with the other half of his vote. I mean, it's really sad that a political party could undermine the Constitution that way. And for half of you nimwit, num, num, I can't say that word, I guess, on the air, num, you know what, I still believe it, like, you know, that the Republicans are lying to themselves that they covered up for the guy. I mean, come on. You know that half the Republican Party is not even in cahoots with Trump. They could care less about him. They're kind of wish we had a better candidate and all that. Well, there isn't a better candidate. He's doing everything he said he was. He's draining the swamp, and they're all exposing themselves. The only flaw I see in the Trump administration is that his cabinet pits have sucked. He's... You know, he, these people that they say to to appoint and he nominated for his cabinet, they very few of them have been loyal to him. They total squishies, and you know he probably uh, suppresses a lot of voices for a lot of people out there. Doesn't let them speak and stuff. But my God, the the chief of staffs he's gone through. Are you kidding me? The Department of Defense, two of them now. Are you kidding me? Those guys didn't like him one bit. I mean, what the hell was he picking these people for? They're just not on his team. I don't know why. I guess they accept the honor because he's a president and all. It's kind of hard to reject um, his presidency. But, um, you know, like your excellence, your, you know, I will accept the task. But then they turn on him and they resign and then they argue with him. And ah, what the hell? Do you see what? General Mathis said to Trump, who is General Mathis to be telling 
Trump that he can't bring National Guard anywhere at any place at any time, whenever the hell he feels, feels like it. You know? Do they fear a, a military insurrection of the United States? And and do they really fear his dictatorial powers as president? Like, you really you think Trump really wants to be dictator of the United States? I'm sure he'd won 16 years in, in the presidency like FDR. I'm sure that's for sure. I don't see why not. Uh, he's got nothing better to do right now. He's already redeemed himself. They're speaking about redemption. He's a perfect example where he had to redeem himself after bankruptcies. Took it on the chin. Good press, bad press, all press. And he snapped out of it, you know. It's one of those things where he redeemed himself. He had partners that, you know, saved him many times. I heard the Hilton wrote him a check for $50 million in the Hilton in Chicago to save him from bankruptcy. And they went ahead and gave him his, bought out his his partnership portion. And um, with that cash, he was able to renegotiate loans and continue to live, live high on the hog and never, never let them see you sweat. You know what I mean? Tell the banks, yeah, you want to market this stuff? Take my properties from me. You do it. And the banks will say, no, 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 we're in banking. Go ahead. Uh, We'll just renegotiate the loan. Well, that in the meantime, you need to be able to pay for your lifestyle. I think 50 million bucks would help you a lot to redeem yourself. But hey, it's a credit to having cool partners. You know, there's a lot of uh, big downtown real estate that he struck out on. I think I'm going to have like a day here in the Concrete Conserve where we're just going to talk about Trump's real estate and maybe bring in someone here in the studio who can actually you know, fill the gaps that I right now cannot fill. Properties, addresses, buyers, sellers, broker talk kind of stuff, big leases. I wonder I wonder if I can pull that one off. That would be a good show. But since I have some real estate knowledge as a licensed uh, commercial uh, real estate agent at one time, still have the license, but wasn't very successful at real estate. Um, I definitely had a nose for it, but... Didn't have that pound the payment, knock on the door, make the calls, follow up, canvas, stay up to date, keep in touch. About blah, blah, blah. the social side of, of being a commercial real estate agent was never my cup of tea. That maybe that anti-social side of me. It's kind of inconsistent with my personality because I'm kind of gregarious. I laugh at myself. I make jokes about myself. I joke with people all the time. Makes me kind of very social in that regard. But I'm not really a socialite per se like to go around to real estate functions, chamber of commerce meetings, um, symposiums, be out and about, be seen and see and be seen. That's kind of hard for me. Um, I'm kind of recluse in that regard, more so as I got older. So I was never very good at commercial real estate because it required a lot of, uh, you know, uh, smooching, you know, just going around smoozing and smooching and kissing butt and being around and, uh, just being where the, you know, being in that room where it happens, you know, that's basically it. So I would definitely have to find people to join me in this show to talk about the real estate talk. Like, I'd like to know the details of how Trump, you know, bought the Doral golf course. That'd be very cool because that was local and Doral was an area that I worked. I'd like to know how Doral was purchased, you know. I have some knowledge about Trump putting his name to buildings, uh, like the Trump Tower, 
in Hollywood. Um, that was right on the beach, a nice project. Uh, George Paris developed it. That must have been cool. I, what I don't know is how George Paris, the Democrat, uh, surmised in his head that he was going to lease uh, Trump's last name, you know, and have Trump show up for grand openings and stuff like that. And then the properties not do that well. It caught up in the 2009 mess. Um, 2003, 2004, 2005 seemed to be pretty cool, but in 2005, six, seven, and eight were disastrous because the banking crisis occurred, and Trump Tower got caught in the middle of it, so it needed more time to sell. That kind of stuff I like to like to know more about. I like to see who who was uh, you know who would know. If there were any fireworks there, was there any screaming and yelling between Paris and Trump? That'd be pretty interesting to know. But, you know, as far as what goes on in Manhattan, I definitely would have to go to someone else. I'd have to find out who could either call in or sit in and tell us really what went up and down. I know there's an incredible article on Trump's days in developing New York that must have been fascinating to, to be around. Trump's in his late 20s, early 30s, in the Village Voice. And the article is long as hell. And I watched, I, I watched, I read how Trump just used the press, used people, used Mayor Koch, supported the guy who ran against Koch, um, got into the politics, probably was doing it uh, uh, maybe even for the first time to some degree, delving into politics, using the school of business, using Teach, uh, the teachers to get to the students, having the students support uh, his development model for New York Convention Center and uh, and him like pulling it off. I think there were several sites up for grabs. The shipyards was one of them. And, um, it, you know, since I just came up with the subject off the cuff, I don't remember the details, but if you ever uh, get a chance to read a Village Voice article about Trump, they really tried hard to slam him in the article. And even in the negativity of the article, the way the douche who wrote it wrote it, eh, Trump came out looking like a wizard. You would buy opposing counsel. You know, hey, you, you did a good job against me in court. I want you on my side this time and would pay, and pay, pay for his services. I mean, that kind of knack that he had for pulling things off it was something that I had learned to admire after the, the primary elections because, as I've said many times on this show, I was a Ted Cruiser. And once I got rolled over, I began to delve into Trump. But, uh, you know, it was not easy because some of the stuff that you don't like about him, I didn't like about him either. But then I realized, what's there to like about the present status quo? What was there to like about the... The eight years of Barack Hussein Obamania, all the lies and the corruption, you can just see it. Now it's coming out, but look how many years later. What I knew to be true, uh, you know, nobody seemed to care or, or want to admit. Uh, it's one of those. Ugh. And now his corruption is starting to show that, uh, you know, that he spied on Trump and then he screwed Trump big time. He had... He weaponized the IRS, the CIA, the DOJ, the DIA. I mean, it was gross. You know, 
it was gross. The uh, it was uh, there's an article written in 2015. How a young Donald Trump forced his way from Avenue Z to Manhattan by Wayne Barrett, July the 20th, 2015. And Trump is looking dapper, young as hell. And it, it starts back in 1978, as a person writes this article. Uh, and um, he, de- uh, he starts off by developing the article by requesting several thousand pages of records from the State Union Development Corporation. The staff there set him up in a conference room so that he could review them on site. This is the reporter, Wayne Barrett. He sat down alone at a long table with stacks of papers and began plowing through them. Barrett was only 35 years old at the time. He had been on the staff at The Voice for less than a year, but the story he was chasing was about to, was a series of million-dollar real estate transactions with a big one. Some of the city's most prominent power brokers were involved, including New York Mayor Abe Beam, and at the center of it was a brass young developer, named Donald Trump. As Barrett was sitting alone in this table doing this research, he was surprised when a nearby phone began to ring. I didn't know whether to pick it up or not, Barrett said. I, he couldn't imagine who might be on the other end. No one but a few government employees could have possibly known that he was even at this office. But after a few rings, he lifted the receiver and heard the familiar voice. Wayne, Barrett said his voice booming, taking on Trump's now unmistakable accent. It's Donald. I hear you're doing a story on me. I never talked to the guy in my life. And then, though that was like completely out of the blue, you can imagine the guy doing research in the article about Donald Trump, and Donald Trump obviously has someone at the corporation's offices or something to know that, that, hey, there's a journalist prowling through these records. Uh, you might want to give him a call. And for Trump to have the guy's phone number. I'll continue. Though he'd be working on the story for several months, it was Trump's way of letting him know he was keeping an eye on him, Barrett says. After all, the story he was working on, which would land Trump on the cover of the January 1979 issue, weighing or sneer, and a mop of brown hair was the first detailed examination of Trump's business practices to appear in the press, and the, revolt, and the, re, and the results weren't pretty. Nearly 40, nearly 40 years on, Trump, the right-wing, preening, bombastic, running-for-president guy, his campaign once covered up by the media mostly as a joke, is showing no signs of slowing down. At press time, he was leading in most major polls of likely GOP primary candidates, much to the chagrin of the party establishment. And despite lurking from one crisis to another, the disparaging comments about Mexican immigrants, the insistence that Senator John McCain was not a war hero, his fledgling campaign had yet fallen apart. So who says he was, the, the campaign was fledgling, fledgling if it didn't fall apart? I mean, come on. Um... This is how this article is written. So that's a classic example of out-of-context reporting. In fact, it seems to be gaining support. Trump's continued success seems to have caught everyone by surprise, including Barrett. No one knows Trump quite like this long-time investigative reporter for the Village Voice, who spent 30 years as a thorn in the New York side, in the New York side, 
in authority in the side of New York's political establishment before leaving the paper in 2011. Parrott's reporting from uh, 1979 would end up as a two-part series, and a portion of which is reprinted in this issue. Was just the beginning. Barrett, now 70, will go on to cover Trump regularly over the next decade, ultimately publishing a thorough, unauthorized biography of the Donald in 1991, which I suggest we all read, because I'm now reading this for the first time. So, despite the knowledge has accrued about Trump, Barrett says he's not quite sure what to make of Trump, the candidate. No one could have predicted, Barrett says, that he was pulling the way he was and better than former Governor Jeb Bush, seen only weeks ago as a shoe-in for the Republican nomination. Actually, in Barrett's view, the campaign success may have been caught, may have caught Trump himself off guard. What began as a branding exercise seems to be morphed <laughs> into something different. Second time I heard that, um, do, uh, not well. Uh, second time I've heard that in two days, that it was a branding exercise. He was just you know tooting his horn, getting himself in the press, kind of like reinventing himself as Trump, the puppet master. Well, the other person that that repeats what Barrett says is none other than George Soros. Okay. Then suddenly it became a real campaign. As a real estate mogul, Trump said, he used to have to do real development. But as he wrote in the Daily Beast article in 2011, for the past decade, Trump has done little actual building. Instead, he's mostly made money from reality TV and by licensing his name for other people's projects. The Daily, the Daily Beast piece detailed a series of projects with shady overseas investors looking to slap Trump's name on their properties. Aside from peddling his reputation, Trump was otherwise not much involved. Everything is branding to Donald, Barrett says. He doesn't really own much anymore. A couple of golf courses here and there, a building that he built 30 years ago, but he doesn't own a great deal. What he does is market his name. When Barrett began his series for The Voice, Trump was already something of a topic in the New York press, owing mostly to the developer's father, Fred Trump. That is not true. Fred was prominent, but it was his idea to go to Manhattan. Fred was a C-plus developer at best. He was also the architect of some high-profile deals in Manhattan in the mid-'70s. Even so, most of the attention that Trump, the younger, had received by that point focused mostly on his outlandish personality and the sheer amount of money he had been throwing around, which was remarkable in a city that was, by many accounts, on its last financial legs. By contrast, Barrett says, the first to take a fine-tooth comb to Trump's businesses practices. In other words, this Barrett guy is the first guy to expose him. This is how the media is. They're just pounding away, trying to, to put a dent in his armor, you know. You know, Trump the whole time is doing business with people that are have higher net worth with him. Always has been. He never claimed to have done this by himself. He brands it that way, but people knew that he had partners. Always had partners. Some of these partners spoke at the convention, by the way. By contract, Barrett's series was the first to take fine tooth combs, fine tooth, oh, tooth comb to Trump's business practices. The reporter focused on two prominent development projects: the Hyatt Hotel in Midtown 
and a proposed convention center site on the west side. That's the convention center site that I believe he used, the business school at, uh, uh, no, it's not Syracuse. It's the one in downtown, maybe Fordham or uh, New York University. I'm not so sure. Maybe this article will expose it. The two topics now 40 years in the past may seem to be Asian history, but they were in many ways the deals that made Trump who he is today. He cited this, these same projects when he announced his candidacy back in June, recounting that after four or five years in Brooklyn, I ventured into Manhattan and did a lot of great deals. The Grand Hyatt Hotel. I was responsible for the convention center on the west side. I did a lot of great deals. I did them early and I was young. I made it the old-fashioned way. So you see how, uh, you know, you can see that the man just pulled it off. He really pulled it off. He shook this town down and won. And now they're trying to shake him down and taking our country down with it. And these four scandals say everything about we need to know about America. It is just too far to the left. Even in the Republican Party, say, say it isn't so. Reform, 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 reform. I hear it everywhere in politics. That's why I wrote a book about the reinvention of the United States. We need to reinvent what we find to be extreme. We need to reinvent what it is for people to educate themselves. And it really is that. We need to educate ourselves. We Nowhere in the Constitution does it state the government should educate our children. We grew to a point where it didn't make economic sense, perhaps, to educate our children at mass scale. But I don't really have grounds to say that because there's a substantial, credible private school system since the get-go. So why don't we expand that more? What is it that that the private schools did to itself to not reach more children. It's always the money. In other words, to keep the, t- the tuitions high, it had to be a specialized amount of uh, children attending private schools. Otherwise, if you, like most things in competition, if you do make an, an offer a lot of something, the price tends to go down. So the article describes how then-Mayor Beam and others at the top of the political establishment bent over backwards for Trump to help him develop a property owned the Penn Central Transportation Company. Excuse me, that was owned by the Penn Central Transportation Company into what was to be a multi-billion-dollar convention center. Through a hefty tax incentives and guaranteed loans, the city offered the young developer a chance to leverage public risk for his own private profit without putting up a dollar of his own. You know what kind of envy that creates? Think about it. That your attitude and your pizzazz and who you're connected to and who you pay off and who you do and what you do. And and I don't mean pay off in terms of bribes. I mean in pay off in terms of support. In other words, these opposing counsels from other cases or stuff he reads or God knows how. You know, the envious immediately think bribe and, and kickback and all that stuff. This, this article is not implying that, although, no, sorry, it might be implying that, but can't prove it, as, as if he had somehow arrived there by accident. It was the poorest neighborhood in the city, Barrett says, of this Brownsville section of Manhattan, but both of us were young radicals. They were doing all kinds of organizing there. We published a paper called The People's Voice. We were doing it as a political thing, but of course, that was completely beyond his comprehension. He had checked out. He checked this out. 
I certainly hadn't said anything. And he says to me in the universe, you know, Wayne, you don't have to live in Brownsville. I can get you an apartment. So he had the bribery and the, the, the threat thing flowing full scale. See, I can get you an apartment, Wayne, so you can be my friend. You can write articles about me that are great. See how the article really w- went there? He just cast it out. Hey, you know, I can bribe you. They are, you know, hey, Wayne, no problem. You don't have to live in Brownsville. You know, you, I can get you a place. Anyway, Trump refused to return Barrett's calls for years after stories ran, including even when Barrett began working on a full-length biography. By that time, Trump was on the balls of his, was on the balls of his butt financially. Barrett said it was 1991, the year the biography was published, and Trump filed for corporate bankruptcy for the first time. He 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 has done so three or four times since. He was, as you can imagine, extremely aware of me. This is Barrett. So aware, he says, that the two actually did have to come one last run-in. They, they had to have a nun, a one last run-in. In 1991, Barrett and his research assistant at the time, Timothy O'Brien, later an editor at the New York Times and Huffington Post, decided they tried to attend Trump's birthday bash at the Trump Castle Casino in Atlantic City. While O'Brien walks around past the police officer guarding the door, Barrett was stopped. And in doing so, I'm not sure... There are five minutes that you can slap handcuffs on me, Barrett says. Defiant trespassing if you want. Charge me with it. Not just trespass, man. I was trashed. I was charged with defiant trespass. That's a good representation of how Donald Trump felt about me. Let's answer this call. Yes? Well, I'm just about ending my show. Uh, I got three more minutes. You've got like one more minute, right? My phone and my studio clock are off by a couple of minutes. What is your, what does your phone actually say? I got uh, six fifty-eight. Correct, six fifty-eight. Well, it's a perfect entree here on the Concrete Conservative to pass this on to Adam Levinson. We're going to talk about. Uh, the last time this country was in hell and high water. What year was that, Adam? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Our, our country is always uh, doing what it can to move forward, doing, uh, doing, you know, moving the, the, doing the job of democracy. Yeah, you see how you see how Adam goes PC on us here. I just finished lashing out on the Village Voice that did the article about Trump for this last hour, and you come and dovetail what the next segment's going to be. So stay silent for a moment so I can say, stay free, my friends. I'll be back in a moment on the Concrete Conservatives. We'll be talking to you next Monday.